Before I start this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, just the usual note of thanks to Sora Shimazaki at Pexels, who took the photograph which adorns the podcast cover art. Let's crack on. Hello and welcome to episode 66 of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Kirkbride. It's been one hell of a busy week this week where fraud and money laundering take centre stage. We also round up cyber attack news appearing across various outlets. So let's crack on. As usual, what I've done is I've linked the principal stories in the podcast description. We'll start, as we so often do, with sanctions. Sanctions news this week emanates principally from the United Kingdom and the changes are mainly updates with one fairly notable exception. First, 16 entries on the Democratic People's Republic of Korea financial sanctions regime have been amended, remaining subject of an asset freeze. This follows a decision of the United Nations to amend these entries. The UK has also announced the extension of a licence relating to humanitarian activity in Syria. The extension is for six months and will last until Valentine's Day 2024. The government has also made a host of updates to the Russian and Iranian sanctions lists for human rights and other abuses. Finally, the UK government has also updated its guidance for compliance with the ban on Russian access to professional services. Links to all of these can be found in the podcast description. Beyond the updates and amendments to the various sanctions regimes, the UK has also published a research briefing, Sanctions Against Russia, which provides a broad overview of the imposition of sanctions since the Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2022. While the link to the briefing is in the podcast description, there's an interesting section worth extracting from the summary. It quotes as follows, Sanctions are being introduced on a rolling basis and the UK has said nothing is off the table. The focus is increasingly turning to the prevention of sanctions evasion. Now, this is something that I'd actually identified some months ago as the imposition of new sanctions began to reduce and the shift, of course, would inevitably focus on enforcement. Now, the report goes on to say, or the briefing paper goes on to say, as of the 23rd of June 2023, 1,601 individuals and 228 entities are subject to UK sanctions under the Russian regime. Almost 1,800 individuals and entities are subject to EU sanctions against Russia. The UK has targeted over 130 oligarchs with a net worth of over £140 billion. In tandem with trade and financial restrictions, Russia is now the most sanctioned country in the world. As I say, that briefing paper is linked in the podcast description, and you can go and have a look at it. That's four. That's it for sanctions this week. Now we move to look at fraud. The fraud news comes as a mixture from the United States and the UK. We'll start in the US with our old friend, good old friend, pandemic relief fraud, with news that a man from Chicago has been convicted of fraudulently obtaining $2.7 million in small business grants and loans provided to relieve the economic impact of the pandemic. Sentencing is set for the 10th of October this year. You may recall that last week we reported that pandemic-related fraud in the US is likely to be around $200 billion, 
I did say billion dollars, and it's likely that any sentence will include some form of confiscation in this case. The UK pandemic relief story, or pandemic relief fraud story, is news from the Crown Prosecution Service of the conviction of uh, one Rice Kayani. As the press release provides, the government had made emergency funds available to companies in need of urgent help via the Small Business Grant Fund, which was administered by local authorities. A national investigation service investigation revealed that between 4th May and 9th May 2020, multiple false applications were made for the Small Business Grant Fund at St Helens, Thurrock and Rochdale local authorities. The three local authorities were defrauded of £35,000, £85,000 and £75,000 respectively, leading to a total loss of £195,000. Now, while investigators were unable to identify the applicants involved, the money was transferred to a company house, a company's account of which Kayani was the sole director. £155,000 of the money that was taken has already been recovered and a confiscation order is now sought for the remaining funds. Kayani received a sentence of 16 months imprisonment, which was suspended for 18 months. Links to both stories, the US one and the UK one, can be found in the podcast description. Now, as an interesting footnote to this story, it's quite timely, really. The government responded to the 45th report of the Public Accounts Committee. It was published on, I think, the 27th of June, or at least that's when the Public Accounts Committee website uploaded it. And it provides us with a reminder of the attitude of the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy to the losses on local authority grants payments. The committee concluded that the department did not expect to recoup the majority of the £985 million of local authority grants payments which were made. So it's almost a billion pounds. While this case, I suppose, is a very small step in the right direction in terms of recovery, when you're losing almost a billion pounds through a scheme, it's certainly a long way to go, especially as they don't expect to get that money back. For the sake of completeness, I've linked both the initial Public Accounts Committee report, which I think was published in April this year, and the government's response, which was published last week, in the podcast description so you can enjoy those at your leisure. We'll stick with the United Kingdom for the next story before swinging back to the US for the conclusion of this week's fraud news. The Serious Fraud Office in the United Kingdom has announced its new director as Nick Fgrave QPM, which is a Queen's Performance Medal given to officers, police officers. Fgrave was chair of the National Police Chiefs Council, Criminal Justice Coordination Committee, and held roles on the Criminal Procedure Rules Committee and the Sentencing Council. Between February 2019 and September 2022, he was Assistant Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police Service, and prior to this, he was the Chief Constable for Surrey Police between December 2015 and February 2019. Fgrave replaces Lisa Osofsky, who stands down at the end of August this year. Link to the press release is in the podcast description. The fraud news this week concludes with a story from the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, the CFTC, which has announced a consent order against Argent Asset Group, LLC, and First State Depository Company, LLC, 
on the 20th of June. In addition, on the 30th of June, the court entered an order of default judgment and permanent injunction against Robert Higgins. Now, the scheme was a fraud related to precious metals where, over a period of eight years, the defendants engaged in a, quote, fraudulent and deceptive scheme to solicit and misappropriate tens of millions of dollars in funds and silver from approximately 200 million customers in connection with a fraudulent silver leasing program. The order requires the defendants to pay $112,700,000 in restitution to those defrauded and pay a $33 million civil monetary penalty. Additionally, the orders then join the defendants from further violations of the Commodity Exchange Act and the CFTC regulations as charged and impose permanent trading bans in any CFTC-regulated markets as well as registration bans against the defendants. Now, the link to the CFTC press release can be found in the podcast description. That is it for the fraud news this week. Now, we move to consider a bulky amount of money laundering news. Start in the UK, where His Majesty's Treasury has announced a consultation on reform of the United Kingdom's anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism laws. I touched on this last week. The consultation document outlines, outlines four reform proposals. The first option is to enhance OPBAS. Now, OPBAS is the Office for Professional Body Anti-Money Laundering Supervision. The Uh, enhancement of OPBAS will come in the form of the strengthening of its powers, but with no change in its remit. Option two is to reduce the number of anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism PBSs, retaining only the highest performing supervisors from that pool. The third option is the creation of a single anti-money laundering and countering Uh, the financing of terrorism supervisor for professional services replacing the current PBSs. So there would be one body to supervise all legal and accountancy sector firms. This body would likely be a public body independent of ministerial department but accountable to the Treasury. Option four is the creation of a single anti-money laundering supervisor. This super supervisor would take over responsibility for anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism compliance currently held by the Financial Conduct Authority and the Gambling Commission. The consultation closes on 30th of September 2023 and links to the announcement and the consultation document can be found in the podcast description. Now I'll stick with the UK with just a very brief announcement that the National Crime Agency has published its SARS digital newsletter for June 2023 and I've linked it in the podcast description. In other news, the Financial Action Task Force, the FATF, has also announced a couple of consultations on amendments to Recommendation 8 of the FATF 40 and on the FATF best practice on combating the abuse of non-profit organisations. The consultations are concerned broadly with how the risk-based approach might best be implemented in this particular context. Consultations are open until the 18th of August 2023, and the FATF expects to finalise this work at its October 2023 plenary. The FATF has also updated its consolidated assessment ratings and the links to all of those documents, both consultations and the updated consolidated assessment, can be found in the podcast description. 
Finally, on money laundering this week, Transparency International has released a report which indicates that more than two-thirds of corporate-owned real estate in France is held anonymously. As the press release provides, six years after France began collecting information on the beneficial owners of companies, almost a third of legal entities in France have failed to comply. Partly as a consequence, more than 7.33 million parcels of land, which could contain one or more multiple properties in France, are held anonymously. This effectively creates a dead end for efforts to follow the money of white-collar criminals, kleptocrats and sanctioned elites into French real estate, which is known to be a favoured destination for corrupt cash, much like the UK property market. In It remains to be seen whether Transparency International's efforts to highlight this issue manages to provoke the French authorities into more concerted action. Nevertheless, this news is a reminder of the challenges faced by authorities seeking to root out beneficial ownership in the name of transparency in the fight against financial crime. The report and the press release can be found in the podcast description. Now, a bit of bribery and anti-corruption news. It starts this week in Australia, where the National Anti-Corruption Commission, the NACC, has announced that by 5pm last Sunday it had received 44 referrals uh, to it by individuals. Notable among the early referrals was the consultancy uh, consultancy firm PwC, which was referred by the Greens Senator Barbara Pocock. The commission started operating uh, the day before, on the 1st of July. Staying on that side of the planet, broadly speaking, in Japan, where another official of the 2020 Tokyo Olympics has been found guilty of corruption in relation to bribes for securing sponsorship and licensing agreements. Joji Matsui, the former head of Amuse Consultancy Company, was sentenced to two years in prison, suspended for four years. This is not the first time an individual guilty of corruption in relation to the Tokyo Games has been found guilty, but avoided jail time. Uh, In episode 55 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, we looked at the founder of Aoki Holdings, which paid bribes, uh, and its former chairman and two others who were found guilty but also avoided jail time, the court having handed down in both of those cases, in all of those cases, in fact, suspended sentences. To Europe, continental Europe now, where there's a good range of stories. First, the European Public Prosecutor's Office, the EPPO, has signed a working arrangement with the National Anti-Corruption Bureau of Ukraine, the NABU. The agreement is designed to facilitate cooperation between the EPPO and NABU on the investigation of corruption. Press release and copy of the working agreement in English can be found in the podcast description to Slovakia now, and a story which we first covered in episodes 54 and 60 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, and it relates to Peter Kazimir, who, as well as being head of the Central Bank of Slovakia, is a member of the European Central Bank Committee. Now, it's alleged that he paid a bribe to the head of Slovakia's tax office. His trial started this week, and he has affirmed his innocent his innocence and refused to stand down from his role with the S, uh, the ECB or with the Slovakian Central Bank. And we'll have to keep tabs on that one as the trial continues. Now, a bit of market abuse rule uh, news this week, but it's not really market abuse news. And it's certainly quite historical in 
terms of its relevance. But anyway, it relates to Tom Hayes. Now, you may remember that Hayes was convicted in 2015 of conspiracy to defraud by rigging the London Interbank Offered Rate, or LIBOR, as it may be better known. Well, Hayes is to have his conviction referred to the Court of Appeal after a review of the case by the Criminal Cases Review Commission. Hayes spent five and a half years in prison and was released in 2021. Now, in relation to this case, there is actually an an interesting confiscation hearing which relates to his conviction. And it's all surrounds the ownership interest of his wife in the jointly owned home which they had which became subject to a confiscation order. We'll certainly keep tabs on this one as well. It's an interesting one. It'll be interesting to see what the Court of Appeal does here. I've linked the press release from the Criminal Cases Review Commission website as well as the interesting confiscation case I was talking about in relation to Hayes. They're both linked, of course, in the podcast description. Now, cyber news this week, and there's a decent amount of it, not, not, not a wealth of it like there have been in previous weeks, but a decent amount. Education and healthcare are once more flavour of the week here. Start with news of an attack on an exam board, the AQA, which is the largest exam board in England. At the moment, it's being described as a data breach, so I suppose more will come out on this over coming days and weeks. It's not the first time an exam board has been targeted with investigations ongoing into data breaches at the OCR and Pearson, which are other exam boards in England and Wales. Sticking with education only this time, overlapping with health, and it's the continuing impact of the University of Manchester cyber attack. It was announced uh, that NHS data had been compromised because of a medical study which was being undertaken at the university at the time. I think I mentioned this in last week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast. Well, some figures have been put on the amount of data which has been taken, and that figure is 250 gigabytes. And the data relates to patients from or who are receiving treatment with the NHS, and that is all believed to have been compromised. Uh, Before moving to a bit, another bit of health-related cyber attack news, just a quick mention of a cyber attack on another higher education institution. This time it's the University of the West of Scotland. The cyber attack has affected its website and what it describes as digital systems, although it's believed, I think, graduation is happening next week and that is uh, believed to be unaffected. In other health news, the Russian ransomware gang Black Cat claims it's in possession of seven terabytes of data from BART's Health uh, National Health Service Trust. The data is believed to be broad-ranging and includes identification information of clinicians and other employees of the trust, as well as national insurance numbers and other information. In the Republic of Ireland, an attack on DAA, which runs Dublin Airport, has compromised the personal data of 2,000 employees. This was not a direct attack on DAA, rather an attack on Aon, a third-party infrastructure provider. It is all, it would seem, linked to the MoveIt cyber attack, which seems to have blighted an incredible number of companies over the last four to six weeks. And I'm guessing this is not going to be the last I hear of this MoveIt cyber attack. In fact, there's so much relating to that MoveIt cyber attack, it's difficult to keep tabs on every single aspect of it. Two interesting stories which I'd recommend reading before I bring this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast to a close. First, in Australia, 
where the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, which is the supervisor authority of banks, insurance and pensions providers in Australia, has imposed an additional capital requirement on Medibank Private, which is a health insurer. This imposition comes in wake of a cyber attack on the insurer in October 2022, where personal data was accessed. Now, imposing stricter capital adequacy requirements on organisations is an interesting development for a regulator, and one which is not, I suppose, entirely unexpected. One can so easily see something similar happening in respect of organisations in the UK and elsewhere, as authorities seek to face down the seemingly persistent threat posed by cyber attacks. I think I'm going to have to check the Basel Capital Accords to see what they say, if anything, about this issue in the context of other financial services providers. Now, this is not my story, of course, but it's uh, something which I read this week on the website of global law firm Clyde & Co. So I've linked it in the podcast description and I'd certainly recommend that you give it a read. And finally this week, the National Cyber Security Centre in the United Kingdom has highlighted the annual report from Active Cyber Defence, which advocates the benefit the benefits of whole of a whole of society approach to the prevention of cyber attacks. This is certainly something which I can wholeheartedly get behind. The cyber battle is one in which we should all have a vested interest to see that the battle is won, certainly. Press release and report from uh, active cyber defense can be found in the podcast description. Now, that is it for this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. If you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll hear from me again, all being well, next Sunday with the usual roundup of all things financial crime. Have a great week, everyone. <laughs>